The Finding Holy podcast is where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. And you'll get to hear everyone's laundry routines. To listen to the Finding Holy podcast, go to aahales.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Although the number of pretended Christians be great, yet that of true believers, in proportion to the other, was never so small. Every episode we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon is brought to you by Jonathan Swift. It was published in 1744. We're not quite sure when it was originally preached, uh, but it would have been preached at St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin. Joel, I think there's a fear inside of all of us of being authentic. Are we genuine or are we not? Are we who we say we are even when no one is looking? And being a hypocrite is honestly one of the worst things you can be called today. Jonathan Swift was terrified of this. And he was so scared of being a hypocrite, so worried that he would come off as a hypocrite, that he didn't want to let people know he was a Christian lest they find out that he does some sin or does something on the side and say, oh, see, you're not a real Christian because you do this. And he became so wrapped up in that fear that history doesn't actually really remember him as a Christian. He's known as the definer of satire, but he's really not known to history as a Christian. Yeah, when people think of Jonathan Swift, uh, you know, you have flashbacks to sixth grade where you had to read Gulliver's Travels or A Modest Proposal. Um, but if you lived back as a friend of Jonathan Swift back at that time, you would have seen him as a, a rather devout believer. He never missed a day of church. He he was very active in his prayer life. Uh, years after he died, we've, we found his prayer journal, and it was completely stuffed with prayers of all of the people around him, prayers for the people around him. Like so many of our speakers, Jonathan Swift did not have the easiest life. Jonathan Swift was born in 1667. His family fled to Ireland due to the English Civil War. He himself would then flee a revolution in Ireland when he was also really young. And because of all this moving back and forth, he would end up behind most of the students in his classes. And he said that he only got his bachelor's by a special grace. Now, he had some really tough things that he had to go through. Um, and some of it was kind of his own doing. He's a special... In our series, most of the people have hard things happen to them and they trust God through it. But in Jonathan Swift's case, honestly, he does some of this to himself. He makes some of these mistakes. Uh, so he was a secretary for a Lord and he wrote the memoirs of the Lord, uh, hoping that this would make him famous. But actually, he just made a bunch of people mad at him because they didn't think he did a very good job. So then he thought, well, I can use this position to get another job and it didn't work out. So then he goes directly to the king of the land and asks for a new job. This actually gets him demoted and sent back to Ireland. And when he gets to Ireland, he finds out that actually the job he had been sent for was already filled. And before this whole mess is said and done, he ends up as a chaplain to a lord in the middle of nowhere with a congregation of 15 people, which is a pretty big demotion. Yeah, and this was really quite humbling for him at this point. Uh, and he began writing under pseudonyms. And he would eventually write really famous works. Like, you know, we mentioned Amada's Proposal and Golifer's Travels. And these books were really big deals, especially in that area in that time. Golifer's Travels, just to remind you, it may have been a while since you've read it. A, a man wakes up shipwrecked. He's a giant. He's been tied down by these, you know, tiny people that look like, you know, bugs to him. 
he ends up on this long journey. At one point, he's himself tiny and ends up on an island of giants, and he ends up on an island of horse people, if I recall. But the whole thing is kind of strange to us looking back, but it's written as a satire. The people of their day understood the joke he was making, and it was absolutely, I mean, he was skewering them as strong as any The Onion article today would. I mean, he was considered really good at it. And he also wrote A Modest Proposal, and this one is very famous. Uh, basically, during that time, Irish people were not being treated well. In fact, we read that at one point, basically, the United Kingdom just kind of starves the Irish people, and over half a million people die. And so he writes this, um, it's a joke, but he's making a point that basically is saying, look, why don't we just start eating the Irish people's babies? Then we'd solve the hunger problem, and we'd get rid of the Irish. Isn't that what we want, really, after all of that? He's making the point that, like, look how bad things are, that this actually sounds feasible, and this sounds like what you're trying to do. He would go on to write another book, too. Um, not all of his books were secular in nature. There was a book called An Argument Against Abolishing Christianity, and this basically called out the lack of real faith among the believers and attacked people who weren't really um, going to church. And some people got him confused, thought he was serious, thought this was considered a real work. He was making a joke. One of the things that he says is basically, if we get rid of church, and then we'll lose the Sabbath, and that's like the best day to go riding bikes or shopping or go fishing making the point that if we lose church, we lose the Sabbath, but no one's actually going to church. They're going out to parks and shopping, and they're not actually in church, but he's saying it's the best day to not do that. He makes a lot of points like that. In his day, he was considered the greatest. 300 years later, some of those jokes are lost. That happens. Now, the, the end of his life ends up being a pretty sad affair. He ends up living to 80, but the last years of his life, he ends up confined to a psychiatric hospital. Uh, he has what was probably, looking back on it, uh, some type of terminal dementia. Uh, he got into fights and became pretty feeble. And at the end of his life, for the last year that he lived, uh, it said that he didn't utter a single word. And the bulk of his fortune after he died ended up going to a psychiatric hospital that still operates to this day. Now, today's sermon is a bit radical and different. It's not something that people would be used to. He's speaking about the wisdom of the world, and it goes back to the idea that he's talking about basically why would you go to the world for knowledge and wisdom, and what you're finding in the world you could find even better in the Bible. It's really different, though. If most people today, if you, you ask somebody, said, oh, I'm reading some Aristotle or some Socrates, they would be like, oh, you must be a deep thinker. They would consider that's very intelligent, you know, Greek philosophy or something intelligent to read. But Swift doesn't do that. He basically calls you out as a hypocrite. And he says, look, if you call yourself a Christian, but you're looking to these guys who didn't even know God for advice, you're not really doing what a Christian is supposed to do. And he also says at one point, too, he, I, he has this line, he's basically, could you take like a thousand Greek philosophers and trade them for a single line of Christ? Are you going to find even remotely the amount of wisdom in these Greek philosophers that you would find in the Bible? And he's saying, no, like that's a waste of time. Now, us here at Revived Thoughts, we don't fully endorse the idea that, you you know, someone shouldn't read any type of philosophical work. There is a lot of merit to a lot of philosophical books. And it is kind of ironic that a writer is criticizing people for reading books that aren't explicitly Christian. But what, what, he's, what he's trying to say and what, what he's intending is uh, he's, he's trying to point out the problem of people seeking wisdom in the world rather than wisdom in the Bible. And, and he's pointing out the futility uh, of, of seeking all of these answers about life 
um, from someplace that isn't the Bible. And I, I think that is something that's, it's a problem that's timeless. It's a problem that, I mean, this was 300 years ago, um, and people were still looking for wisdom in these great philosophers. And Jonathan Swift is saying it's, it's, it's never going to get clearer than we see in the Bible here. And this is what we want the audience to keep in mind. This guy, he was terrified of being a hypocrite. He spent his life not telling people he was a Christian. He then goes on to preach this sermon fiercely against going to the world for advice. He's a complex person, and he was by no means perfect. In fact, to put it nicely, of all the Christians in Revive Thought so far, he might be the least perfect of them that we've gone through. And in this sermon, he's attacking philosophy, but he's not attacking knowledge itself. You know, one thing that he also did was he predicted the idea that there would be moons around Mars. And he actually has a crater on the moon named after him because of this prediction. He's not against knowledge or learning. What he is against is seeking wisdom from the world when wisdom, righteous living, the the kind of thing that leads your life should come from God. Maybe one of the greatest reasons he was so terrified of hypocrisy and so against it to the point where, again, he wasn't really remembered very much as a Christian, was due to the fact that he was surrounded largely by nominal Christians. In his book, Reasons Not to Abolish Christianity, one of the points that he really drives home is is that atheists don't need to do away with the church. The church hardly does anything of note anyway, uh, and, and that's what he saw around him. And maybe the reason Swift thinks that this happened is because they stopped going to the Bible for their wisdom, but instead accepted the wisdom of the world. of this world is foolishness with God. 1 Corinthians 3.19 It is remarkable that about the time of our Savior's coming into the world, all kinds of learning flourished to a very great degree, so that these men have more extravagant praise and high opinions of the wisdom and virtue of the Gentile sages of those days, and likewise of those ancient philosophers who went before them, whose doctrines are left upon record, either by themselves or other writers. As far as this may be taken for granted, it may be said that the providence of God brought this about for several wise ends and purposes. For it is certain that these philosophers had been a long time before searching out where to fix the true happiness of man, and not being able to agree upon any certainty about it, they could not possibly but conclude, if they judged impartially, that all their inquiries were in the end vain and fruitless, the consequence of which must be not only an acknowledgment of the weakness of all human wisdom, but also an open passage made for letting in those beams of light which the glorious sunshine of the gospel then brought into the world by revealing those hidden truths which they had so long before been laboring to discover, and fixing the general happiness of mankind beyond all controversy and dispute. And therefore, the providence of God wisely suffered men of deep genius and learning then to arise, who should search into the truth of the gospel now found, and canvass its doctrines with all the subtlety and knowledge they were masters, and, in the end, freely acknowledge that to be the true wisdom only which comes from above. 
However, to make a further inquiry into the truth of this observation, I do not doubt that there is reason to think that a great many of those lectures given to ancient philosophers are taken upon trust, and by a sort of men who are not very likely to be at the pains of an inquiry that would employ so much time and thinking. For the usual ends why men affect this kind of talk appear generally to be either out of vanity, that they may pass upon the world for persons of great knowledge and observation, or, what is worse, there are some who highly exalt the wisdom of those Gentile sages, thereby they diminish divine revelation, and more especially that of the gospel. For the consequence they would have us draw is this, that since those ancient philosophers rose to a greater pitch of wisdom and virtue than was ever known among Christians, and all this purely upon the strength of their own reason and liberty of thinking, it must follow that either all revelation is false, or, what is worse, that it has depraved the nature of man and left him worse than it found him. But this high opinion of heathen wisdom is not very ancient, or at all backed up by primitive times. Our Savior had but a low esteem of it, as appears by his treatment of the Pharisees and Sadducees, who followed the doctrines of Plato and Epicurus. St. Paul, likewise, who was well-versed in all the Grecian literature, seems very much to despise their philosophy, as we find in his writings, cautioning the Colossians to beware, unless any man spoils themselves through philosophy and vain deceit. And, in another place, he advises Timothy to avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called, that is, not to introduce into the Christian doctrine the janglings of those vain philosophers which they would pass upon the world for science. And the reasons he gives are, first, that those who professed them did error concerning the faith, secondly, because the knowledge of them did increase ungodliness, vain babblings being empty sounds, that is, tedious disputes about words which the philosophers were always so full of, and which were the natural product of disputes and dissensions between several groups. Neither had the early fathers any great or good opinion of the heathen philosophy, as is manifest from several passages in their writings, so that this vein of affecting to raise the reputation of those sages so high is a mode and a vice from recent times, assumed chiefly, as I have said, to harm revealed knowledge and the consequences of it among us. Now, because this is a prejudice which may prevail with some persons so far as to weaken the influence of the gospel, and this is an opinion which men of education are likely to be encountered with when they have to show themselves to the world, I will attempt to show that their preference of worldly wisdom and virtue before that of the Christian is every way unjust and grounded upon ignorance or mistake. In order to do this, I will consider four things. First, I will produce certain points where the wisdom and virtue of all unrevealed philosophy in general fell short and was imperfect. They were as wise and as good as it was possible for them to be under such disadvantages, 
and would have probably been infinitely more so with such aids as we enjoy. But our lessons are certainly much better. However, our practices may fall short. The first point I shall mention is that universal defect which was in all their schemes, that they could not agree about their chief good, or where to place the happiness of mankind. None had a tolerable answer upon this difficulty to satisfy a reasonable person. For to say, as the most plausible of them did, that happiness consisted in virtue, was vain babbling, and a mere sound of words to amuse others and themselves, because they were not agreed what this virtue was or where it did consist, because several among the best of them taught quite different things, placing happiness in health or good fortune, in riches or in honor, where all were agreed that virtue was not, as I will have occasion to show when I speak of their particular tenets. The second great defect in the Gentile philosophy was that it needed some suitable reward proportioned to the better part of man, his mind, as an encouragement for his progress in virtue. The difficulties they met with upon the score of this were great, and not to be accounted for. Bodily goods, being only suitable to bodily wants, are no rest at all for the mind, and, if they were, Yet are they not the proper fruits of wisdom and virtue, being equally attainable by the ignorant and wicked. Now, human nature is so designed that we can never pursue anything heartily but upon hopes of a reward. If we run a race, it is in expectation of a prize, and the greater the prize, the faster we run. For an incorruptible crown, if we understand it and believe it to be such, more than a corrupted one. But some of the philosophers gave all this quite another turn, and pretended to refine so far as to call virtue its own reward, and worthy to be followed only for itself. Whereas, if there be anything in this more than the sound of the words, it is at least too abstracted to become a universal influencing principle in the world, and therefore could not be of general use. It was the need of assigning some happiness proportioned to the soul of man that caused many of them, either on the one hand to be sour and morose, supercilious and untreatable, or, on the other, to fall into the vulgar pursuits of common men, to hunt after greatness and riches, to make their court and to serve occasions, as Plato did to the younger Dionysius, and Aristotle to Alexander the Great, so impossible it is for a man who looks no further than the present world to fix himself long in a contemplation where the present world has no part. He has no sure hold, no firm footing. He can never expect to remove the earth he rests upon while he has no support besides for his feet. But wants, like Archimedes, some other place to stand. To talk of bearing pain and grief without any sort of present or future hope cannot be purely greatness of spirit. There must be a mixture in it of affectation and an alloy of pride, or, perhaps, is wholly counterfeit. It is true there has been all along in the world a notion of rewards and punishments in another life. 
but it seems to have rather served as an entertainment to poets, or as a terror to children, than a settled principle by which men pretended to govern any of their actions. The last celebrated words of Socrates, a little before his death, do not seem to reckon or build much upon any such opinion, and Caesar made no scruple to disown it and ridicule it in open senate. Third, the greatest and wisest of all their philosophers were never able to give any satisfaction to others and themselves in their notions of a deity. They were often extremely gross and absurd in their conceptions, and those who made the fairest conjectures are such as were generally allowed by the learned to have seen the system of Moses, if I may so call it, who was in great reputation at that time in the heathen world, as we find by Diodorus, Justin, Longinus, and other authors. For the rest, the wisest among them laid aside all notions after a deity as a disquisition vain and fruitless, which indeed it was upon unrevealed principles, and those who ventured to engage too far fell into incoherence and confusion. Fourth, those among them who had the justest conceptions of a divine power, and did also admit a providence, had no notion at all of entirely relying and depending upon either. They trusted in themselves for all things. But, as for a trust or dependence upon God, they would not have understood the phrase. It made no part of their lifestyle. Therefore, it was that, in all issues and events which they could not reconcile to their own sentiments of reason and justice, they were quite disconcerted. They had no retreat, but upon every blow of adverse fortune, either affected to be indifferent, or grew sullen and severe, or else yielded and sunk like other men. Having now produced certain points wherein the wisdom and virtue of all unrevealed philosophy fell short and was very imperfect, I go on, in the second place, to show, in several instances, where some of the most renowned philosophers have been grossly defective in their lessons of morality. Thales, the founder of the Ionic sect, so celebrated for morality, being asked how a man might bear ill fortune with greatest ease, answered, by seeing his enemies in a worse condition. An answer truly barbarous, unworthy of human nature, and which included such consequences as must destroy all society from the world. Solon, lamenting the death of a son, one told him, You lament in vain. Therefore, said he, I lament because it is in vain. This was a plain confession how imperfect all his philosophy was, and that something was still wanting. He owned that all his wisdom and morals were useless, and this upon one of the most frequent accidents in life. How much better could he have learned to support himself, even from David, by his entire dependence upon God? and that before our Savior had advanced the notions of religion to the height and perfection where he has instructed his disciples. Plato himself, with all his refinements, placed happiness in wisdom, health, good fortune, honor, and riches, and held that they who enjoyed all these were perfectly 
happy, which opinion was indeed unworthy its owner, leaving the wise and good man wholly at the mercy of uncertain chance and to be miserable without resource. His scholar Aristotle fell more grossly into the same notion and plainly affirmed that virtue, without the goods of fortune, was not sufficient for happiness, but that a wise man must be miserable in poverty and sickness. Even Diogenes himself, from whose pride one would have looked for other notions, delivered it as his opinion that a poor old man was the most miserable thing in life. Zeno also and his followers fell into many absurdities, among which nothing could be greater than that of maintaining all crimes to be equal, which, instead of making vice hateful, rendered it as a thing indifferent and familiar to all men. Lastly, Epicurus had no notion of justice, but as it was profitable to oneself, and his placing happiness and pleasure, with all the advantages he could expound it by, was liable to very great exception. For although he taught that pleasure did consist in virtue, yet he did not any way fix or ascertain the boundaries of virtue, as he ought to have done, by which means he misled his followers into the greatest vices, making their names to become odious and scandalous, even in the heathen world. I have produced these few instances from a great many others to show the imperfection of heathen philosophy, where I have confined myself wholly to their morality. And surely we may pronounce upon it, in the words of St. James, that this wisdom descended not from above, but was earthly and sensual. What if I had produced their absurd notions about God and the soul? It would then have completed the character given it by that apostle, and appeared to have been devilish, too. But it is easy to observe from the nature of these few particulars that their defects in morals were purely the flagging and fainting of the mind for want of a support by revelation from God. I proceed to show the perfection of Christian wisdom from above, and I will attempt to make it appear from those proper characters and marks of it by the apostle before mentioned. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. The wisdom from above is first pure. This purity of the mind and spirit is peculiar to the gospel. Our Savior says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. A mind free from all pollution of lusts will have a daily vision of God where unrevealed religion can form no notion. This is it that keeps us unspotted from the world, and many have been prevailed upon to live in the practice of all purity, holiness, and righteousness, far beyond the examples of the most celebrated philosophers. It is peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated. The Christian doctrine teaches us all those attitudes that make us pleasant and courteous, gentle, and kind, 
without any leaven of pride or vanity, which entered into the foundation of most heathen schemes. So we are taught to be meek and lowly. Our Savior's last legacy was peace, and he commands us to forgive our offending brother seventy times seven. Christian wisdom is full of mercy and good works, teaching the height of all moral virtues, of which the heathens fell infinitely short. Plato, indeed, and it is worth observing, has somewhere a dialogue, or part of one, about forgiving our enemies, which was perhaps the highest strain ever reached by man without divine assistance. Yet how little is that to what our Savior commands us, to love them that hate us, to bless them that curse us, and to do good to them that despitefully use us. Christian wisdom is without partiality. It is not calculated for this or that nation of people, but the whole race of mankind. Not so the philosophical schemes, which were narrow and confined, adapted to their peculiar towns, governments, or sects. But in every nation he that fears God and works righteousness is acceptable with him. Lastly, it is without hypocrisy. It appears to be what it really is. It is all of a piece. By the doctrines of the gospel, we are so far from being allowed to publish to the world those virtues we have not, that we are commanded to hide even from ourselves those we really have, and not to let our right hand know what our left hand does, unlike several branches of the heathen wisdom, which pretended to teach insensibility and indifference, magnanimity and contempt of life, while at the same time, in other parts, it belied its own doctrines. I come now, in the last place, to show that the great examples of wisdom and virtue among the Greek sages were produced by personal merit, and not influenced by the doctrine of any particular sect, whereas in Christianity, it is quite the contrary. The two virtues most celebrated by ancient moralists were fortitude and temperance, as relating to the government of a man in his private capacity, to which their schemes were generally addressed and confined. And the two instances wherein those virtues arrived at the greatest height were Socrates and Cato. But neither these nor any other virtues possessed by these two were at all owing to any lessons or doctrines of a sect. For Socrates himself was of none at all. And although Cato was called a Stoic, it was more from a resemblance of manners in his worst qualities than that he avowed himself one of their disciples. The same may be affirmed of many other great men of antiquity. Where I infer that those who were renowned for virtue among them were more like to the good, natural dispositions of their own minds than to the doctrines of any sect they pretended to follow. On the other side, as the examples of fortitude and patience among the early Christians have been infinitely greater and more numerous, so they were altogether the product of their principles and doctrine, and were such as the same persons, without those aids, would never have arrived. Of this truth, most of the apostles, with many thousand martyrs, are a cloud of witnesses beyond exception. Having, therefore, spoken so largely upon the former heads, I shall dwell no longer upon this. And, if it should here be objected, 
Why does not Christianity still produce the same effects? It is easy to answer, first, that although the number of pretended Christians be great, yet that of true believers, in proportion to the other, was never so small. And it is a true, lively faith alone that, by the assistance of God's grace, can influence our practice. Secondly, we may answer that Christianity itself has very much suffered by being blended up with Gentile philosophy. The Platonic system, first taken into religion, was thought to have given matter for some early heresies in the Church. When disputes began to arise, the peripatetic forms were introduced by Scotus as best fitted for controversy. And however this may now have become necessary, it was surely the author of a contentious vein, which has since occasioned very dire consequences, stopped the progress of Christianity, and been a great promoter of vice, verifying that sentence given by St. James and mentioned before. Where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. This was the fatal stop to the Greeks in their progress both of arts and arms. Their wise men were divided under several sects, and their governments under several commonwealths, all in opposition to each other, which engaged them in eternal quarrels among themselves, while they should have been armed against the common enemy. And I wish we had no other examples from the like causes, less foreign or ancient than that. Diogenes said Socrates was a madman. The disciples of Zeno and Epicurus, nay, of Plato and Aristotle, were engaged in fierce disputes about the most insignificant trifles. And if this be the present language and practice among us Christians, no wonder that Christianity does not still produce the same effects which it did at first, when it was received and embraced in its utmost purity and perfection. For such wisdom as this cannot descend from above, but must be earthly, sensual, devilish, full of confusion and every evil work, whereas the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. This is the true heavenly wisdom which Christianity only can boast of and which the greatest of the heathen wise men could never arrive at. Now to God the Father. Amen. So two things that stood out to me in this sermon, um, one of which, real quick, he mentions that few of them were able to, few of the great Greek philosophers were able to talk about anything even closely resembling God, except for those that were exposed to what he says is the law of Moses. And he actually mentions a couple names. I had never heard before this sermon that there were Greek philosophers who knew about the Bible and the, you know, the Old Testament. It makes sense looking back, but that was the first time I'd ever heard that. It was in the middle of the sermon. That's a quick, interesting thing that I found just kind of fascinating. The second thing, the thing that I kind of take away, though, is he also talks about in that same paragraph, basically, how all the Greek philosophers, all these men spent all this time talking and talking and trying to figure out how to live life. And he points out that none of them are happy. 
Like, not one of them comes up with a happy solution, a way that will make you have any kind of joy. These people are miserable, they talk themselves to death. None of them are truly feeling anything remotely resembling joy. And then he basically compares that to the wisdom of God, which is, you know, pure. It comes from the Father. It is a joyful thing. And he's like, again, why are you going to Greek philosophy when you have this much purer, better way to live that will lead you joyful and with a spring in your step and you're singing songs, you're glorying God just thinking about his goodness and the gospel. Or you can have Greek philosophy, which makes you miserable and talk a lot. When you put it together like that, it really makes worldly wisdom seem foolish, honestly. Thank you for listening to Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Nathaniel Lawton. If you enjoyed this episode on Jonathan Swift, please visit our website, revivethoughts.com. There you can find a transcript of today's episode and all of our episodes in our Revive Thoughts series. Here at Revive Thoughts, we try to tell you about preachers and pastors and sermons from the past, even ones you may not have known. One you may not have known today was Jonathan Swift and the sermon, Wisdom of the World. If you enjoyed that, if you'd like to share this knowledge and this hopefully wisdom that you learned today with others, please give it to a friend, tell others about the show that so we can continue to grow and let others know what's going on and we can continue to bring you more sermons. You can also share it with others on social media. And hey, while you're on social media, check us out on Facebook, check us out on Twitter, check us out on Instagram, and you can go to our website for more information as well. And if you would like to be on the show. We are in need of speakers, people who can narrate sermons like this one today. You can email us at revivethoughts at gmail.com on information of how to do that. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. And if you did, I'd like to also invite you over to the Finding Holy podcast, where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between things that really matter in issues of faith and your everyday holy life. You'll even get to hear about the laundry routines. Go to aahales.com slash podcast or listen to the Finding Holy podcast wherever you choose to listen to your shows.